Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories all week long was the aftermath of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack and its effect on the East Coast as some gas stations were running out of fuel and people were waiting in long lines to stock up. Colonial Pipeline has said that they resumed operations, although it will take time to get back up to full capacity. We don't know the exact details, but they are said to have paid up to a $5 million ransom. And with this incident, ransomware attacks have emerged as a large-scale threat moving beyond schools and businesses to infrastructure like the pipeline. The group Darkside is said to be behind the attack and resembles somewhat of a ransomware business. For more on how these types of attacks are increasingly causing problems, we'll speak to Robert McMillan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. This is a business. I mean, this is like the company, sorry, the hacking group behind this operates very much like a kind of ugly software startup that's working outside of the regulatory framework. They, the product they make is something called ransomware as a service. And the services they offer are kind of um, unusual, but they're, they're very useful to, to criminals. So they offer um, media relations. They, uh, they will facilitate phone calls between victims. They uh, make the software and they actively recruit people that they call affiliates who are essentially hackers who can break into companies and install their ransomware software on corporate networks. Um, it's, it's kind of a fascinating story, and it's one that's been building for years, really. I mean, the very first ransomware, I think, dates back to the late 80s, where people were mailing stuff that you're supposed to put in your computer and would infect it around. Wow. But it really started It really started taking off around 2012, where this is when consumers were getting hit with it. it would, you would get... Um, an infection on your computer and something, uh, something would pop up and you'd have to pay a hundred bucks and your, your computer wouldn't work anymore. And just step by step, it's become increasingly professionalized and increasingly sophisticated. And uh, no one really knows what to do about it, quite honestly. The group behind this is called Dark Side. And as you mentioned, how this is being professionalized in a way, you mentioned on your article that they have a press section on their website. First of all, as you said, they kind of facilitate the actions through all this. They said for themselves that they didn't personally do this. As you mentioned, kind of one of their affiliates might have done this. But still, you know, they're responsible for that ransomware and giving it to those people. And they're the ones that are doing these attacks. Tell me the numbers that we know about ransomware attacks in the country, because that's one of the big faults. We've done stories about this on the podcast uh, when it hits, you know, local businesses and schools and stuff. And everybody always says the same thing. There's no database for how many ransomware attacks are happening in the country. Yeah, that's right. And if you were hit with ransomware, your company's operations were affected. Maybe your secret data was accessed. Maybe it was taken from the company. Maybe information about your customers was, was obtained. There are a lot of people that don't want to talk about that. They don't want to publicly announce it. And sometimes you find out about these ransomware attacks like when there's no gas. But a lot of them just go under the radar. You know, it's a small company. It gets hit. They pay the ransom. They're back up and running within a few days. They have an operational problem, but it's just not enough to make it into the press. 
So you're absolutely right. We really have no idea the full scope of the problem. We do know, and we've reported in, in, the, in our article, that there is a firm that does analysis of the blockchain and with the Bitcoin wallets they know about that ransomware companies were being paid, they calculated that there were $350 million paid in 2020. The real number vastly exceeds that for sure. And the actual cost of ransomware beyond, these are just the companies that paid. I mean, this doesn't include companies that didn't pay and had to restore everything from backup or rebuild systems. I mean, there are many companies that just incur great costs to kind of restore everything. And boy, it's, I, I would be really, really be interested in hearing the, uh, a, a, a very accurate estimate of what, what it's actually costing the country. But right. because of the nature of the crime, we're not going to get that. What we've been hearing is that the ransomware attack didn't really hack into any critical infrastructure things with regards to the pipeline. They just shut everything down so that it wouldn't spread or just out of caution. But, you know, we're like you mentioned, we're seeing the effects of it already with, when it comes to fuel and gas. But what do we know about the actual terms of, uh, of what's going on with the Colonial Pipeline? Uh, we know that this, this group, DarkSide, they hunt for the whales, right? They're not going after the uh, personal computer for a hundred bucks in documents where they've tried to recruit people to do the break-in for them. They say, look at, if you can't command a half a million dollar or greater ransom, uh, we don't even, even want to deal with you as a partner. So the, the ransom is le- very likely in the several millions of dollars range, but, but I, I don't know exactly what they're asking here. This is crippling computer systems. In a lot of cases, that's what happens. But beyond that, they've extended to threaten to release documents and, and sensitive information. This uh, is not just about computer systems. It has you know a lot more to do with it. And I'm sure that we're going to be hearing more about this when the Biden administration talks about infrastructure projects and the need for more cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, this is a problem that no one really knows how to deal with. I mean, in theory, if people stop feeding the beast, if they stop paying the ransoms, then the problem will go away. But when you have a, a, a choice between your business failing and you paying a couple million dollars to get, get back up and running, you're going to take that second choice. So yeah, it would be really interesting to see how the Biden administration responds to this. There, there are some like common sense ideas that could make the problem less of a challenge. And, and, and I, I could go into those if you're interested, but there is now we're, we're moving into the realm of cyber policy right. <laughs> and that, that can sometimes be a dangerous area. I mean, most of it is uh, make sure you have good backups and the, the cost of that is a little bit more upfront, but in, in the long run, that's, what's going to really serve you best. Robert McMillan reporter at the wall street journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Another top story this week, House Republicans have voted to remove Representative Liz Cheney from her post as conference chair. This comes after backlash over her continued criticism of former President Trump. And with this vote, it illustrates that Republicans think the only way toward winning majorities in Congress is with Trump as their leader. For more on all the fallout, we'll speak to Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. I think right now it signifies that President Trump is absolutely the de facto leader and that Republican lawmakers feel that they are beholden to him. You know, just a couple of months ago after that attack on Capitol Hill, 
You saw a lot of Liz Cheney and the other House Republicans that voted to impeach President Trump. They got a lot of backlash for that decision. In fact, there was a vote to try to remove Cheney from her post as a House GOP conference chair. Kevin McCarthy and a number of other Republicans actually backed Cheney then. However, since then, we've seen that President Trump has continued to attack Cheney and those Republicans that voted to impeach him. And you've seen that Liz Cheney has upped her attacks on President Trump. So I think right now what you're seeing is that Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans believe that their best path back to the majority is sticking with Trump and having someone like Liz Cheney, a very critical opponent of President Trump's in leadership won't help them. Back in February, when that vote to ouster the first time, it was 145 to 61. So overwhelmingly, they decided to keep her this time they did a voice vote, so we don't really know who voted what or how, and we don't have that breakdown, that number breakdown. Yeah, we don't know who voted uh, to oust her, who voted to keep her, or like you said, how many people voted to oust or keep her. All we know is from talking to sources in the room is that there was allegedly booing at some point against Cheney. She spoke for a little bit, and then the vote happened, and the vote was very, very quick. So Kevin McCarthy and other House Republicans getting a lot of backlash, actually, for deciding to do a voice vote behind closed doors. But we know right now that Liz Cheney is not going quietly. She said at her press conference after the vote today that she would do everything she can to keep President Trump from getting near the Oval Office again. There's a group of more than 100 Republicans that include former officials, I guess some current officials. We don't know any real names yet, former governors, things like that, that are all signing on saying, you know, if the Republican Party doesn't correct itself and kind of loosen Trump's grip over them, that they might try to form another party. You know, it's sending that signal that a lot of people are not happy with the way this is going down right now. Yes, it's absolutely sending that signal. And we won't know until 2022 or even the 2022 primaries when figures like Liz Cheney are up for re-election and when they are primaried likely by a lot of Trump-backed candidates, really how this will play out. I will say the issue with starting a third party is that they don't have the same resources that the Republican National Committee has. They don't have that big party apparatus. So I don't know if they would want to grow to be a bigger party or this would just essentially be them taking some sort of a stand. I think Republicans that voted to impeach or vote Republicans that are very critical of President Trump, they're in a very awkward position right now because, you know, if they're seeking reelection, that's obviously, you know, what they're choosing to do. But they're they're likely going to struggle getting that financial backing from some of these major institutions if President Trump still has this grip on the party as we see it right, right now. So people are saying that Liz Cheney obviously is going to be continuing the fight. You mentioned her statement saying she's not going to she's going to do everything she can to prevent Trump from getting near the Oval Office. She's going to be doing speeches, other appearances talking about this. And the president himself, he he spoke out, kind of took a like a victory lap, I guess you could say, uh, just continually call her a warmonger. I think he said she's a bitter, horrible human being, uh, you know, so th obviously the, the president going to take that victory lap there. And uh, there's going to be another vote coming up to see who will replace Liz Cheney. It seems that it would probably be Representative Elise Stefanik. Uh, nobody else is trying to run for that position. So uh, her again, a Trump loyalist will be in installed there as the third top uh, House Republican there. What's ironic about Elise Stefanik replacing Liz Cheney is that 
if you compare their voting records, Liz Cheney on paper is much more conservative than Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik obviously coming from the blue state of New York, though she represents a very conservative district. Liz Cheney is much more conservative and Liz Cheney actually has so many more, I think I would say, you would say conservative credentials than Elise Stefanik, just her being a Cheney, the former, I mean, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney someone who is seen very much as a conservative champion. So it's ironic how this all has played out. But Elise Stefanik definitely has paved her own path to this point of notoriety and being popular. She is very much responsible. She and her super PAC, EPAC or Elevate PAC have helped recruit a record number of Republican women to run for office. But this situation and the optics of Elise Stefanik potentially trying to potentially replacing Liz Cheney is interesting because here you have Liz Cheney, the highest ranking or the formerly the highest ranking Republican woman in the House being ousted because she did not want to tow the party line. And then you have Elise Stefanik, a Republican woman, someone who is very enthusiastic about recruiting more Republican women to run for office. She is pledging to very much tow the party line. So some critics saying that this is a very uh, sad image that's emerging from this scenario. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The economy right now is in comeback mode, but businesses can't find enough people to hire, despite millions of people that are still unemployed. Potential workers are holding back because of fears of getting sick, lack of childcare, and some are still making more money with enhanced unemployment benefits than they made in their pre-pandemic jobs. For more on why some businesses can't find employees, we'll speak to Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I think what we're seeing in the economy is that the demand for goods and services is outstripping the supply of labor a little bit. A lot of people have gotten stimulus checks, a lot of people are feeling better. A lot of people saved a lot of money during the pandemic. If they're fortunate enough to keep their jobs but didn't have commuting or childcare expenses, put off vacations, and they want to spend that money, you get a stimulus check, you can go spend it tomorrow. It's harder to get that worker on board, right? Uh, and there's right. a lot of reasons why workers are a little hesitant to come back even still. So uh, what are the unemployment numbers that we've seen lately? Because uh, my understanding is that that part of it is improving. But then we'll get into kind of why some workers don't want to go back. And, and, you know, it's kind of the things that we've been talking about, scared of getting COVID still. The unemployment benefits is a big thing. A lot of them are making more money than they would at their normal jobs. But what are those numbers that we're seeing right now? Yeah, the latest unemployment number showed about a half million new applications for unemployment benefits last week. That's a vast improvement from a year ago, but it's still a double where we were before the pandemic began. That same report shows about 16 million Americans are receiving benefits. By, by way of comparison, it was about 2 million before the pandemic began. So 16 million is a lot of people receiving unemployment benefits still. Overall unemployment rate, it's fallen. It's about 6% now. It's expected to even tick down a little bit further. And it, that's basically normal, right? That's like the historic average. It's not real low, but it's certainly not what we saw a year ago. Now, let's talk a little bit about why some workers might not want to get back into the workforce. One of the things that I keep seeing is that, you know, obviously some of them are making some decent money with their unemployment benefits right now, but others are, 
waiting to get that better opportunity, let's say. They don't maybe want to go back into some of the sectors they were in before, so they're waiting for something else. Uh, People want to continue to work remotely. So if a job isn't offering that for them, maybe they're going to pass and they're going to wait on something they can get. So workers are being very selective with what they want. That's right. So there's a a number of different factors at play here. Certainly the unemployment benefits are one of them. Benefits have been extended uh, for about 18 months. Usually they're about six months of benefits as you can get, and they pay more. They're $300 better than they were before the pandemic because of the COVID relief bills. So if you're kind of looking at that 10, 15, maybe even $18 an hour job, you're not likely to make much more money going to work than you are on the benefits, especially when you factor in childcare costs commuting costs, things of that. But you're also right that workers are selective. Uh, I talked to ZipRecruiter for this story, and they said only about a third of workers would take the first job they are offered for financial reasons. And that's down from half of workers in 2018, which was a pretty darn good labor market. Uh, So workers, because of stimulus benefits, because of unemployment benefits and the like, I feel like they have some more flexibility. And in some cases, they're waiting to take the job that they lost, right? They lost a job that was in their neighborhood or something they enjoyed doing. A lot of people I talked to were in kind of event space, in-person services. Those jobs haven't fully come back yet, but they are coming back. So they're reluctant to take a construction job or a warehousing job that they don't really feel fits their skill sets. Just to keep on that theme about uh, making more money on unemployment and all, the average unemployment recipient earns better than the equivalent of working a full-time job at $15 an hour. That's if, you know, they're getting the max payout from their state and with these enhanced unemployment benefits. So yeah, I mean, the the urge to have to go back so quickly isn't really there. And then on the employer side, a lot of them are offering a lot of benefits, extra pay. Uh, I know a lot of big companies have boosted their pay just to start attracting workers as well. But even then, that uh, has a trickle effect too and can uh, leak over to the consumer as well. That's right. So we're starting to see evidence of wage increases. Uh, Companies like Walmart, Amazon, Costco, really big employers have all raised pay this year. And the overall pay picture, it's not going up by gangbusters around 3%, but that's similar to what it was before the pandemic. Remember, that was the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. So the fact that pay is rising at a similar rate than basically the best post-World War II expansion that we've seen it's fairly tight out there. It could, though, still be temporary because some of these workers that are on the sideline, come September, benefits run out, schools reopen, people are vaccinated. There might be some more competition in a few months. So is that the forecast right there? Once September rolls around and these benefits start to go away, if things start to normal out, is that when the labor market will start uh, evening out itself? Is that when companies will start finding more workers? I think that that's a likely possibility. I think at the moment, like I said, sort of the demand is outstripping the supply, things might come back into equilibrium. The businesses that maybe they're a summer seasonal business, they might have to raise pay to, to get that worker. Maybe some other businesses say, well, we'll forgo a project. We'll not open every section of the restaurant and come fall or the beginning of winter. You know, we think that the, the labor market will come back to us. Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Happy to join you anytime. <laughs> Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.